Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 194 of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for another Bar Cart Foundations episode where we zoom in on one very specific topic in the spirits and cocktail world so that at the end of the show, you'll walk away feeling like an armchair expert. This time around, we're going to explore the less glamorous side of booze by learning about how and why a spirit might be considered flawed or faulty. We like to keep it light here. At modern bar cart, but the fact of the matter is, if you spend long enough tasting your way through any segment of the food and drink world, you're gonna come across a few pretty unsavory flavors. We're here to lean into that by investigating how to detect off flavors and aromas, what causes them, and what to do when you encounter them. But before we get too technical, let's take a little detour so that you can make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the Long Island Iced Tea. We've all been to an Applebee's or a TGI Friday's and watched some hammered lush at the bar tank a couple of these bad boys. In fact, I'd wager there's a pretty strong correlation between LIT consumption and other things like marital and workplace dissatisfaction because as we all know, the Long Island iced tea is a thinly veiled highball glass full of booze. To make one, you'll need one half ounce each, or simply equal parts if you're really going for the gusto, of tequila. Vodka, white rum, gin, and triple sec. Then, three quarters of an ounce of lemon juice, one ounce of simple syrup, because you need something to cover up all that hooch, and a little bit of cola to top. In a highball glass, or let's face it, it's gonna be a pint glass, filled with ice, combine your booze, citrus, and simple syrup. Then give it a good stir, top with cola, and garnish with your citrus wedge of choice. Most people opt for a lemon here because it's supposed to look like an iced tea, but I've seen them made with limes plenty of times as well. I wanted to feature the Long Island iced tea, not only because I think it's a generally flawed and non-delicious drink, but also because it has its roots in a time when many spirits were knowingly and intentionally adulterated. Any guesses? If you're thinking prohibition, you get a gold star. According to some sources, the original inspiration for the Long Island Iced Tea is a gentleman known simply as Old Man Bishop. I want that someday. I want to be Old Man Koslick. Might not be that far away. Anyway, Old Man Bishop, he's a guy who lived in a community called Long Island in the city of Kingsport, Tennessee, and this was during Prohibition. In addition to the commonplace cornucopia of booze, Bishop's version is alleged to have contained whiskey and maple syrup. He was in Tennessee, after all. You kind of use what you have on hand. And he was using these in place of triple sec or cola. But the effect was the same. An incredibly strong drink that ended up looking like an innocuous glass of iced tea. Just like speakeasies or bootleggers, if we're to believe this origin story, then the Long Island iced tea appears to have been an innovation that allowed alcohol to hide in plain sight. A different origin story has bartender Robert Rosebud Butt 
creating the drink for a cocktail competition in 1972 while working at the Oak Beach Inn on the Long Island that most of us are familiar with, the one off the coast of New York. But between you and I, when given the option between an old guy drinking in public during Prohibition and a bored beachside bartender in the 70s, you know I'm gonna opt for the former. So, now that you know a little bit more about the drink that most of us are probably too embarrassed to order in front of other people, let's jump straight into this Bar Cart Foundations episode about how to perceive and identify flawed spirits. First, a little background. In the past week or so, since I've returned from working the American Distilling Institute's annual judging of craft spirits, I've noticed a distinct difference in my conversations with family and friends about what happens at events like these. When people ask me how it went, I generally say, well, there was a lot of good stuff and then there was some not so good stuff, you know, keep it kind of general. But this year, I've had a number of folks really focus in, really key in on the fact that indeed, I was tasting some flawed spirits and they had a lot of questions about that. So I figured I'd try to address the topic here for you in a structured way. And there's one thing you should know right off the bat. If you have tasted any non-zero quantity of craft spirits, and that craft designation will be something we focus on later on in the episode, it's all but inevitable that you've tasted something flawed. You may not have noticed it at the time, or if you did, you may have chalked it up to a matter of personal preference, but almost without a doubt, you have tasted a flawed or faulty spirit in the past few months or years especially if you're a listener of this podcast. The overall goal for this show is to give you the tools to spot flaws and understand where they might come from. About halfway through the episode, we'll give specific names, flavors, and aromas to a number of common problems. But first, I want you to get in the mindset of what it's like to be a judge so that you can understand why these issues are so commonly identified at official judging events. So let's begin with a quick crash course in how a spirit is judged in competition. When I think of events where there are judges and where participants can win both their own category and then go on to be considered best in class or best in show, my mind always drifts, and this is telling about my mind, to the National Dog Show that airs right after the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. This is the traditional background programming that plays while the turkey finishes and the sides get prepped on my favorite holiday of the year, and I think it's absolutely perfect. You get to watch a bunch of really cool-looking dogs that you don't have to feed or groom. Then eventually, one of them wins a seemingly arbitrary contest for simply looking cool, right? Like I said, and trotting in a circle. And you can forget about it entirely until next year when the entire process repeats in an identical fashion. It's my kind of mindless programming. When you're watching a dog show, though, you have this intuitive sense that the judges are actually looking for a set of objective criteria, especially when they're judging dogs of a similar class, say the herding group or the terriers or the hounds. You see the very fancy-looking judges checking their teeth, the symmetry of their spine and limbs, and even their gait as they lope around the ring but you generally don't see them writing notes or ticking off little boxes on a scorecard. So to those of us who are following along at home, it seems like the whole dog judging thing is kind of arbitrary. I'm sure it's not, and I'm not qualified to speak on the nuances of canine tooth structure or tail grooming, but I can explain a few things about spirits judging that will help you understand the way that professional judges go about identifying flaws in what they taste. Now, 
If you were to walk into the room at a spirits competition, you'd see a number of different panels scattered around. This is because it's important to separate spirits into a number of larger and smaller buckets if you want to get an accurate sense of quality. The big buckets would be considered spirits categories like gin, whiskey, rum, agave spirits, etc. And generally, each panel of judges will be dedicated to a single category assigned often based on the expertise or occupation of the judge when they are not judging spirits. I myself am a bit more of a generalist, so I tend to float around between different categories depending on the year. But I've mostly found myself on gin or rum panels, which is just fine by me. I feel very comfortable in both those flavor spaces. Within these larger categories, of course, we have smaller subcategories or buckets that usually reflect different styles of a given spirit. For example, you can have London Dry Gin, New American Gin, Geneva, Barrel Age Gin, Old Tom Gin, Navy Strength Gin, and even Flavored Gin. And that's not even all the gins. Each of these styles will be judged on a slightly different set of criteria. So when these panels of judges receive a flight of spirits to judge, that flight is usually organized by grouping together spirits of the same style. Other common attributes that are used to group spirits into flights include proof or ABV, amount of time spent in a barrel, the type of still used to make the spirit, the distillate base, especially for spirits like gin or vodka where you can pretty much use anything you want, and even the presence of external flavor additives like smoke, sweeteners, or infusions. So even though almost every spirits judging competition has a blind component where judges don't know the identity of the liquid they're evaluating, they're generally given enough information to understand the raw materials and techniques responsible for what they're nosing and tasting. Just like a dog judge, reviewing the terrier group might be responsible for evaluating two different chihuahuas named Achilles and Beowulf, a spirits judge reviewing the rum group might be responsible for judging two different pot still molasses rums at 42 to 46% ABV produced by distiller A and distiller B. These are two probably very similar situations. After a tasting flight arrives at the judging table, it usually gets pretty quiet for about 15 to 20 minutes. Judges nose, taste, and spit anywhere from four to eight spirits in a row, in my experience, and at ADI, we take careful notes that will be forwarded on to the distillers and owners who submitted their spirits for review. At all competitions, some type of numerical score is assigned, and it's generally some average or aggregate of all the individual scores that eventually translates to a spirit's overall score, and then the award or ranking in the competition. Flaws and faults in spirits can be identified during the nosing and tasting portion of the judging, and in fact, certain flaws can even be foreshadowed by the color or clarity of a given spirit. So let's not forget about the importance of visual evaluation. All this might sound like a slightly boring and perhaps overly technical process, but before you tune me out, let me just share with you a very simple experiment that I ran recently with my father-in-law, and I think this might kind of show you actually how applicable and how easy to do this process is, even if you're in a slightly less controlled setting. Now, my father-in-law is a big fan of summer drinks on boats, and he's recently been trying to perfect the Orange Crush cocktail, which involves citrus-flavored vodka, orange liqueur, orange juice, and bubbles. So in order to help him figure out his ideal formula, we started by comparing possible base ingredients. 
he happened to have a couple of different orange flavored vodkas on hand. So we started by pouring little samples of each into just a glass and nosing them. For the sake of anonymity, I'll simply mention that one of these vodkas was Swedish and the other had a very Russian sounding name. So make any educated guesses you'd like given that information. The results of just simply nosing these two orange vodkas were stunning and immediate. One had a harsh boozy nose with an artificial citrus smell and the other was much gentler, rounder, and more natural smelling. When we proceeded to taste each spirit then, the results were much the same. And the outcome of this quick two-minute side-by-side quasi-blind tasting was that my father-in-law knew definitively which orange vodka would become the staple for his house orange crush recipe. This is the power of comparing apples to apples, especially when there's some sort of blind component, even if you're just pretending that you didn't see the bottles that you just used to pour the samples. When you're tasting spirits of the same category and style side by side in a group, it's easy to understand what these spirits share in common and to recognize when a spirit seems to deviate from the category norm in either a pleasing or an unpleasant way. If you do any serious tasting at home, I hope you'll make a similar effort to try and line up your spirits in a way that makes them easy to compare to one another. There's a reason why the pros do it. It makes the really good stuff and the really bad stuff much easier to pick out. And that's the one thing I wanted you to take away from all this talk about structured spirits judging. Line them all up, make them as similar as possible. That way, the differences are really going to pop. So now that you have a basic understanding of how experts go about evaluating booze, let's actually give names and sensory qualities to some of the most common flaws and faults you'll come across when tasting your way through the craft spirits world. We'll start with a distinction that I think is helpful, although I'm not sure I've come across too many official literature pieces that really draw this distinction. I'm sure they're out there, but for what it's worth. To me, a flaw is when you taste or smell something in a spirit that could be handled better, whereas a fault is when you're able to identify a flavor or aroma compound that shouldn't be present at all, at all, at all. A flaw in a steak would be, eh, it's kind of chewy or flavorless, maybe because the animal wasn't taken care of well, or maybe because the butcher didn't do a good job preparing it. A fault in a steak would be like green fuzzy mold growing on it. One is disappointing, and the other is a complete deal breaker. Another way to formulate this would be to say, huh, this has an off flavor versus, oh gross, this is completely tainted. Flaw could be better, fault completely undrinkable. Knowing that, let's start off with the serious stuff, the big deal faults that you should hope never to encounter in your spirits, but that nevertheless pop up every now and then. Generally, these can be assessed on the nose of the spirit, and if not on the nose, then very often, on the palate. Many, if not most, faults are microbial in nature, meaning that some yucky mold or bacteria infiltrated the spirit at some point in the production process and exerted a negative influence on the end product. Imagine, if you will, some smells that you could live without. Wet basement, soggy cardboard, mothballs, feet, wet dog, vomit, Cat pee, rotten eggs, strong antiseptic cleaners, 
These are all very common aromas you'll notice in faulty spirits. And I think that one reason why we commonly overlook them is because we're taught that when we're enjoying booze, we're supposed to be looking for food notes, not this other nasty stuff that grosses us out. I will say that if you sense any of the aromas or God forbid flavors that I listed above, you're almost definitely looking at a faulty spirit. Each of these notes can be caused by one or more microbial taints that infiltrate the product before or after distillation, usually in the fermentation or barrel aging process. Vinegary aromas can be caused by acetic acid or lactobacillus. Then there's the barfy sort of Parmesan cheese smell you get from butyric acid. You get a stale paint thinner like smell from acrolein taint. You get feet and rotten eggs from phosphine gas or sulfured barrels. The list goes on and on and on. If you encounter one of these truly vile aromas, I would recommend that you do not continue drinking the booze. It might not kill you, but it can't be good for you. What you can do is try to isolate where in the process this fault might be coming from. And the best way to clear a whole chunk of potential issues off the board is simply to ask if the spirit is barrel aged. If not, this eliminates sulfur and pretty much anything that would be caused by a dirty, dry, or poorly stored barrel. That means that if you're drinking a clear spirit, your big time faults are almost always due to some contamination in their ingredient supply chain or in their mashing and fermentation process. These contamination sources can usually be fixed pretty quickly by revamping production practices and ensuring that you're not just operating in a clean workspace, but a truly sanitary one when it comes to surfaces that your mash will touch. Now, barrel faults can be a little trickier to isolate and distinguish from other microbial taints because the barrel just adds so much extra flavor and texture to a spirit. So I'll leave that challenging task to noses and palates far more experienced than mine, like Nancy the Nose Fraley, who ran a spirits faults class where I first learned about and experienced these compounds. But yes, even after your product is a distilled spirit, unsanitary barrel conditions can still contribute a really nasty flavor to your booze. That's why you tend to see them less often from big operations. They have big, clean, well-maintained barrel facilities with people who carefully tend the barrels. With all that liquid at stake, they're looking to avoid microbial contamination at all costs, so you'd better believe they dedicate good people and resources to the job. Moving on here, slightly away from true faults and maybe into that gray space between a fault and a flaw, you, you may have noticed that we sort of skipped the crucial step of distillation just now, and there's a good reason for that. It involves a good deal of heat. Bacteria and mold don't do so well in super hot environments, so if you're sensing any of the aroma faults that I just listed, they're almost definitely not coming from the still itself, but that doesn't mean things can't go sideways during the distilling process as well. There are a few distilling-related problems that really straddle the line, like I said, between a fault and a flaw. Too much of these compounds and you've got a really undrinkable product, but if just a little is present, you might barely even notice. It might not even cross the threshold of your sensory attention. Many of you will be familiar with the terms heads and tails, which indicate the beginning and end of a distillation run respectively. Most distillers will cut these out of the main run that they plan to bottle or age, which is referred to as the hearts. But if these cuts 
are made lazily or sloppily, you might end up with a serious flaw. So let's look at the technical terms for booze that suffers from bad cuts. Beginning with the heads, the important thing to know is that the compounds found in this portion of a distilling run are very light and have a lower boiling point than the hearts or tails. The elephant in the room compound here is known as methanol, which basically smells like nail polish remover. This is the chemical responsible for unpleasant phenomena like moonshine blindness and other fun side effects. But it needs to be present in really significant quantities before you need to worry about getting sick. Not saying you should go around trying to test that hypothesis, but medical side effects are very rare except in extremely rustic distilling operations. Word of caution here, methanol, in case you couldn't tell, is very closely related to ethanol. They practically rhyme. So if you're nosing a bunch of different spirits and you're like, oh no, these all smell like methanol, that means you're just smelling ethanol and maybe you should be nosing a little bit farther from the glass. Methanol has a much more nose hair burning quality to it. So if you truly come across this compound in a spirits tasting context in any concentration, I think you'll know. In the tails portion of the distilling run, we come across what are called fusel oils, which are the high alcohol compounds that are heavier, oilier, and have a higher boiling point than the hearts. These compounds are actually created during fermentation, but the reason why fusel oils are generally considered a distilling flaw is because they can pretty reliably be cut out of the process, as long as you're doing your cuts correctly. Unlike a headsy spirit containing methanol, there's some disagreement on how to truly detect fusel oils. Some people perceive them as chemical cleaner aromas, whereas others tend to experience them as burnt or overcooked sensations in the spirit. The true catch with methanol and fusel oils is that they can't be truly identified as fault unless the flavors or aromas are so overbearing as to make the spirit undrinkable or unsafe. In fact, there are a number of distilling cultures, notably mezcal, that actively blend some heads and or tails back into the finished spirit to add flavor and texture. So not only do you have to account for category when evaluating the cuts your distiller made, but you also have to ask if those flavors seem intentional and if maybe, just maybe, they might be adding something to the flavor profile of the booze. So long story short, you can have flaws in the distillation process just like in fermentation or in barrel aging. It's a little bit more technical and there's a little bit more of a gray area as to whether it's truly a fault. So this is where you know more sensitive palates prevail. This, this might be one of the more challenging types of flaws to identify. So it's something that you can work on over time. Moving on and situating ourselves safely in the flaws zone, thankfully no more nasty faults, we need to talk about barrels or cooperage for a few minutes. Assuming your distiller is able to avoid putting their booze in actively contaminated barrels, there's still a lot of work to do if you want to produce a clean, delicious product. The places where I usually go to look for flaws in this arena are cooperage sourcing and the tricky three-way calculus problem of barrel size, char level, and time. Just like raw materials for making booze, distillers need to source their barrels. If you're making bourbon, you need an unused charred American oak barrel. 
These things are expensive and have been in extremely high demand for the past decade, which means that craft distillers are often forced to the back of the line or must resort to taking shortcuts. One such shortcut involves using barrels made from kiln-dried staves, which means that they were heated in an oven to rapidly accelerate the time it takes them to cure. This makes them more affordable, of course, to distillers, but unfortunately there's no substitute for staves that are left to slowly cure out in the sun and the elements. We'll talk about what kiln-dried wood can do to a spirit in just a moment. The other barrel sourcing issue you'll encounter is sulfured finishing barrels. These are generally filled with fortified wines like sherry, Madeira, or port, then shipped to the U.S. for distillers to use while finishing their fancy whiskeys. The problem is fortified wines aren't always boozy enough to prevent microbial activity. And if the barrels have to be emptied before they cross the ocean, like they most often do, many barrel brokers will clean these things out using sulfur or related compounds to prevent contamination from those microbes. If you're not careful with how you treat these barrels upon arrival, you can end up transferring that sulfur flavor straight to your otherwise beautiful end product, which is not a good thing. No bueno. So with those two main cooperage sourcing dilemmas in mind, let's move on to where it gets real tricky. Imagine, if you will, that you're a brand new whiskey distiller. You've got enough funding for, let's say, five years, and the success of the whole operation hinges on your ability to distill and age delicious American whiskey. You know that if you age your new-make product in full-sized oak barrels, it'll take around three to four years before it's beginning to get ready to drink, and at that point, you're almost out of runway. Thus begins the fateful trudge down the slippery slope of small barrels. First, you're using 30-gallon barrels instead of the traditional 52s or 55s. Then, your barrel rep convinces you to step down to 15 gallons, and at that point, you're just a hop, skip, and a jump away from using charred oak spirals and various oak extracts to make your juice. Not to say that there aren't times and places for all these tools, but what we see a lot of new craft distillers doing is planning to start with these smaller barrels for the sake of revenue and then aiming to work their way up to full-size barrels down the line. This is like driving your car 50 miles on the highway in low gear with the goal of maybe eventually shifting up a gear somewhere down the road, if you make it that far. That is a good way to break a car. Then... In this equation, we have the char question. Simply put, there are different levels of barrel char. They are described as levels one through five, with one being a light kiss with flame and five being an absolutely incinerated inner barrel. The more char, the more surface area there is for the whiskey to work its way into. This technically speeds up extraction, but only in a manner of speaking. It gets the whiskey very dark very quickly, but you end up sacrificing some of the benevolent effects of oxidation over a long, slow maturation period in exchange for this rapid color change. So here's the final picture. You're a craft distiller fighting for the barrel scraps that the big bourbon houses don't want. The barrel brokers and your own investors team up to convince you that you need to release some young whiskey made using small barrels that are charred to a crisp on the inside. Oh, and by the way, those barrels were made using kiln-dried staves, which contribute their own less-than-desirable flavors to the mix. You mash and you ferment a beautiful distiller's beer. You run it through your brand-new expensive pot, still making sure to get the cuts just right. 
and then you stick it in your tiny burnt out barrels for six months like your investors ask you to. End scene. A lot of this is what we see at craft spirits competitions. Barrel flaws are some of the easiest, in fact, to pick out because they almost always have a chemesthetic effect on the palate. They either dry your mouth out or they leave a burnt cindery flavor with a bitter finish, and sometimes they even fall completely flat, offering a dark and clearly barrel-aged spirit, but with almost no body or texture. Actually, the first place to spot a barrel flaw is before he even knows the spirit. If you know how old it is, you can look at the color and see if it looks either too light or too dark to be that old, regardless of what barrel size you think the distiller may have used. And speaking of color, both kiln-dried wood and rapidly aged booze can display a greenish or grayish hue in the spirit, which is a dead giveaway that you're about to taste something subpar. Then in some cases, like rum and French brandy, you'll also see flavor additives used to provide some color and perhaps even cover up some of the cosmetic flaws in the booze. This too can be handled either well or poorly, but if you're starting with a spirit that's already been blasted into oaky outer space, then there's not much a bit of caramel coloring is going to do to cover that up. In the end, spirits judges usually look for spirits that display barrel characteristics that are appropriate for the amount of time they've spent in oak. That means that if you've got a one-year spirit, we're hoping that it's reasonably light and that the oak isn't overpowering because there's no way it has any right to be at that age. Are we aware of the plate that distillers face when sourcing barrels? Absolutely. But that means we're even more incentivized to praise and award those distillers who find ways to rise above the problem and forge their own solution and flavor identity in the process. That's how the marketplace grows and evolves. As I mentioned, flaws aren't technically faults, and drinking an over-oaked young whiskey isn't going to hurt you, but it's certainly a heck of a lot nicer to enjoy something that checks all the craft boxes without coming with some sort of unfortunate baggage that accompanies learning a complicated science and art form like distillation. I hope that you learned something from this little Foundations episode. If you're in the market to learn even more about spirits, flaws, and faults, please go ahead and shoot us an email at podcast at modernbarcart.com so I can point you in the direction of people and resources far better than I am at explaining the nuances of flaws and faults. It's a fascinating subject, and the deeper you dig, the more there is to learn. Until next time, I hope that you'll treat your favorite spirits with even more reverence for the extreme feat of flavor engineering that they represent. And you know what? Next time you come across a flavor or aroma that seems off to you, I hope you'll stick with it for a second and take your time and try to figure out what might have caused it. Cheers. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. 
We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here. And by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners, and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember, folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode is made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed and some dog show watching spirits, flaws, and faults finding insights from yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2021.